Pew Bibles, page 927, Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter together. In a few moments' time, we're going to uh, look at not just chapter 1, but chapter 1 and chapter 2, the first half of the book of Jonah. But we'll read the first chapter together, page 927 in your Pew Bibles. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own gods, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up. And throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. 
And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together, Speak, O Lord. Well, that is our prayer that you would speak and that the, the words that you speak to your people in this place on this day, that, that seed that is your word would find fertile soil in each of our hearts and our minds and our lives. May we be ready to receive from you, Father, and may we receive that word with gladness and with gratitude. And may we not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. We ask this for our joy in Jesus and for the honor of your name in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be back preaching in a morning service. It feels like a long time. I've been doing this for about nine and a half years now, and uh, I could not begin to count the mistakes that I have made in those nine and a half years. But I've always tried to do the same thing and taken the same approach. And I've always believed that the healthiest way for any pastor to preach is to preach his way through books of the Bible for a number of reasons. Firstly, it saves the congregation from just hearing one pastor's particular hobby horse week in and week out. Um, but also, it, it ought to give the church a healthy, balanced, biblical diet on which to feed. However, it doesn't really work if the pastor chooses to avoid certain books. And I have a confession to make. I don't think in my nine and a half years I have ever preached through any of the minor prophets. I don't think so. The minor prophets, it would seem, are majorly scary for us to approach. First of all, we can't seem to find them in our Bibles. It seems to, the order seems to change around when we're not looking. And then when we do find them, they're very unfamiliar to us. We're not entirely sure what's going on, with the possible exception of the book of Jonah. That is the one book that we've all heard sermons on. That is the one book that we are all fairly familiar with. So what I would like to do is to spend two Sunday mornings on the book of Jonah, and then after that, we're going to take the bull by the horns, and we're going to look at two other less well-known minor prophets together. Jonah is a strange story all about a man intent on making a strange decision, a man determined to run away from God. How strange, and yet how common that is. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness 
has come up before me. Nineveh is a great city. It's telling, isn't it, that in modern English, great has come to mean good. Because we see big and powerful and strong and modern as good. But God looks at this great, big, powerful, strong city and find that it falls short of his standards. Its wickedness comes up before the eyes of God. It may be a modern metropolis, it may be the New York of its day, but God assesses the moral fiber of this city and finds it to be wicked in his sight. But it's not actually Nineveh's rebellion against God that is the focus here, is it? It's Jonah's rebellion against God that is the focus. The so-called servant of God. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Verse 3, but Jonah. There is a problem. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, but Jonah. Jonah rejects his scary mission, and it would have been a scary mission. I'm sure it was uh, frightening for Jonah to think about what it would be like to head to this great pagan city of Nineveh. Uh, I'm sure it was daunting for Kieran and Ashley when they received the call to go to the United Arab Emirates, uh, to Fujairah, is that the right pronunciation? No, I'm not getting a, I was hoping I'd get a nod, no. Close enough, Fujairah. It would have been scary, almost as scary as receiving a call to serve in Airdrie, possibly. Um, but Jonah rejects a scary mission only to embark upon an impossible mission. Mission run away from God. Jonah rejects his costly call to embark upon an impossible journey, to escape, to evade the eye of God. Where do you go to, to run from God? Well, Jonah goes west, presumably because he has been called to go east. He heads in the opposite direction. He goes west. And he goes to the sea. He gets on a boat, which is something that no Jewish man would have done lightly because to the Jewish people of their time, the sea symbolized all that was chaotic, all that was dark, all that was dangerous, all that stood against good and against God. That is why in John's vision in Revelation chapter 21, John tells us, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no more sea. Because the sea stands for all which is chaotic and dark and dangerous. It stands for an absence of the presence of God. And this is where Jonah goes to escape from the Lord. He chooses to step into this dark and chaotic world. And then we come to verse 3. And Scripture tells us that Jonah paid the fare. Isn't that interesting? 
There are a lot of details that we don't need to know, but for some reason we need to know that Jonah paid the fare. We are to notice, I think, that Jonah is not breaking any laws. It doesn't look wrong what he is doing, presumably, to the people around him. And as Christians, certainly in our country, in our context, we can disobey God without breaking the law of the land. We can disobey God without people around us noticing that anything is wrong. We can disobey God without breaking the moral code of our peers, our colleagues, our family members, our friends. We can disobey God without causing a scandal. The world may not notice our disobedience. In fact, if the world does notice our disobedience, it may well celebrate it. It may well say, what a great example. Do it your way. Be the Lord of your own life. Our flight from God may be held up as an example for all to follow. But it's God's voice and it's God's verdict that will stand in the end, and we will never be able to convince Him that right is wrong or that good is bad. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. The words of the Lord came to Jonah, but Jonah. May it never be said of me, the words of the Lord came to Ross, but Ross. And may it never be said of you, the words of the Lord came to you, but you. I wonder if the way that you are living your life is in tune with the words of the Lord, or if you, along with Jonah, have embarked upon this crazy journey to try to run away from the eye of God. Or maybe you're thinking about it. Maybe you're standing at a crossroads in your life, and you know that the Lord is saying, go this way, but you're looking down this road, and you're thinking, that looks really quite attractive to me. Where can you run from God? And why would you run? From God. There is no greater joy, there is no safer place than in the will of God. It can be scary to say yes to God, it can be costly to say yes to God, to let go of a lifestyle that seems very attractive and very exciting, a life lived as your own Lord. But there is no greater joy and there is no safer place than life lived in the will of God. A life lived on the run from God may bring pleasures for a moment, but it will not be a life that brings lasting joy or deep fulfillment or real peace. None of this is to say that it will always be easy to obey the Word of the Lord, to live in the will of God. I am often encouraged by the story in uh, John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus' teaching becomes hard for his followers to accept, and John tells us that many from that time left the Lord. They turned back and they went their own way, 
And Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, well, well, what about you? You don't want to go as well, do you? And Peter, as he often does, speaks on behalf of the rest of the twelve. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that offers me great encouragement because I have been there. I wonder if you have been there. Peter does not say, Lord, what do you mean? We we understand why it's so hard. They don't understand why it's so hard. And neither does Peter say, Lord, what do you mean? We're having a great time. It's easy. It's wonderful. We're not struggling at all. He doesn't say that. He cannot say that. He just says, no one can give us what you can give us. There is no other option. Where would we go? Once you've tasted life lived uh, under the smile of God, life lived in the presence of God, then what else could possibly satisfy? Where else could you possibly go? And you think, as you read the story of Jonah, surely Jonah could have said that. Surely he could at least have said, Lord, your word was not what I wanted to hear, but you have spoken, and I will trust, because a life lived without you just does not bear thinking about. A life lived against you is just not an option. What choice do I have? but to obey your words, to trust in your goodness, and to go to Nineveh. But Jonah says no, and off he goes as far and as fast as he can go. He pays his fare, he gets on board, off they go. Then verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. The storm builds, and the sailors are terrified, not just for their boats or for their livelihood, but for their lives. They cast lots, they find Jonah to be responsible, and they question him, who is he and what has he done? And look at Jonah's response in verse 9. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Really, Jonah? You worship the Lord, the God of heaven? Well, maybe with your lips on the Sabbath in the synagogue, but not with your life, Jonah. And how many of us have experienced life like that? We worship the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, with our lips on a Sunday in the service as we sing the songs on the screen, but our lives tell an altogether different story. So Jonah is thrown overboard, the storm stills, and there the story could end. But God is sovereign. Even where chaos seems to reign, God is in control, and he has a fish ready and waiting. But the Lord, in verse 17, is infinitely stronger 
than but Jonah in verse 3. And how thankful we ought to be for that. We ought to see that no matter how chaotic our world, indeed no matter how chaotic our lives may seem to be, the Lord is on the throne, the Lord is in control, and the Lord is bringing His plans and His purposes to pass. The Lord has a fat fish ready and waiting. We call it a whale, uh, I think because apparently there have been some documented stories of whales swallowing sailors and the sailors surviving to tell their tale. So we call it Jonah and the whale. And I, th I didn't check this, but I think from the many sermons on Jonah that I've heard through the years, <clears throat> that the Hebrew word for fish may also mean whale. I think it could sustain that meaning. There's no distinction apparently in the Hebrew. So we often call it a whale, but I don't see the need for it to be a whale. Maybe it was a whale. Maybe it wasn't a whale. The whole point is that this is a miracle. God is working miraculously to save Jonah from the sea. He is working miraculously and he is working mercifully. It could be a salmon. It could be a sardine. It doesn't matter what the fish was. All that matters is that God has prepared this fish. Through the years building up, presumably God has had his eye on this fish, making sure it's eating and eating and eating, but becoming big enough and ready to swallow a man whole. And through the chaos of this storm with the wind and the waves battering all over the place, actually God is in control. He is manipulating and moving the wind and the waves to ensure that this appointed fish is in the appointed place at the appointed time. So that as soon as Jonah jumps, he is swallowed by the sea only to be swallowed by this great fish. And even here, even now, he is not too far from God to be heard on high. Chapter 2, verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. If you are still breathing, if you are still alive, then no matter the mess you have got yourself into, it is not too late to pray. And it is not too late to see the sovereign, merciful, miraculous hand of God work in your life, just as it worked in the life of Jonah from a seemingly hopeless situation, Jonah prays what is essentially a psalm. Verse 2 of chapter 2, In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. From the depths of the grave I called from, for help, and You listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. 
but you, here's that phrase again, but you brought me to life up from the pits, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. In this psalm, and in this story, as strange as it is, we see the nature of our God. The God who is holy and will not ignore sin forever. The God who is sovereign and who works providentially in the midst of the mess to bring his plans and his purposes to pass. And the God who is merciful the one who hears our prayers and the one who is more than able and more than willing to reach down to rescue those who call on his name, no matter how far we have run from him and no matter the mess that we have made of our lives. We see the nature of God, but even more surprising, Jonah actually points us, as imperfect as he is, to Jesus. In some ways, they are exact opposites. Jonah receives the call of God upon his life. He receives his mission from the Lord, and he runs away in the opposite direction. Jesus receives his God-given calling, his God-given mission wholeheartedly. And even in Gethsemane's garden, as he sweats drops of blood, he prays, yet not my will, but yours be done. Even on Golgotha's hill and Calvary's cross, he stays true until he is able to cry Tetelestai, it is finished. Mission accomplished. Job done. In some ways, Jonah's life points in the opposite direction from the life of the Lord Jesus. But look at Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so the sailors asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah offers to surrender his life in order to save his shipmates. And in so doing, he points imperfectly, to Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 
Jonah offered to surrender his life because he knew that he was to blame. But Jesus gave his life to take our blame. For God, says Paul, made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jonah felt as though he were dead for three days and three nights inside the fish. From the depths of the grave, Sheol in Hebrew, from the depths of the grave I called, he said. Well, Jesus did die for us. But on the third day, God raised him from death. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And the author of life, God raised him from death, triumphant and victorious. And now all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we heard earlier, will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will share in that victory over death. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be washed clean and welcomed into the family of God. We will get to live our lives to the full, to live our lives in the presence of God with the smile of God upon us, to live our lives being able to address God, the maker of heaven and earth, as Abba, Father, with Christ himself. And that life that we live in Christ is life eternal. We will never die. We will live forever with the Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. It is in Jesus' death and resurrection that we truly see God's holy hatred of sin as we consider the price that Jesus paid for us. It is in Jesus' death and resurrection that we see God's sovereignty. On the cross, it looked as though death had won. It looked as though Christ had been defeated. But God was working to bring his plans and his purposes to pass. Indeed, he was working to defeat death itself. And it is in Jesus' death and resurrection that we see the love and the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God most clearly. Because Jesus did all of this for us that we might know life lived to the full and life lived forever with God. Do not run from God, run to God. Trust in Jesus and be faithful to his word and to his call on your life, even when it is hard, even when it is costly, because no matter how scary it may get, nothing can compare to life lived in the love of God, now and forever. Amen. Let's 
rejoice in that love, in that goodness, and in that grace as we sing our closing hymn together. Amazing grace, my chains are gone.